his theory is that every state could be a scenario in which it's Trump against one strong candidate. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, May 4th. Today, I'm joined by Tara Palmieri to address a question that's probably been asked and answered way too many times over the last six years. But are we seeing a new Donald Trump out on the campaign trail? The former president is heading to New Hampshire next week for a CNN town hall. And along the way, Trump seems like he's making some smart strategic adjustments to box out his main Republican rival, Ron DeSantis, while also keeping his eye on the general election. Tara and I dig into 2024. And later, Julia Yaffe joins Ben to discuss the arrest of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich in Russia and the Biden administration's prisoner swap calculus. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today to talk Donald Trump and the state of the Republican primary with Tara Palmieri, who may be a little hungover today because at Puck HQ in Manhattan, we welcomed Lauren Sherman aboard, our business of fashion reporter, and we had a little soiree at the office last night. I wasn't there, but Mm -hmm. Tara got all dressed up. How you doing, Tara? I am feeling very fancy, fresh, and fashionable. Um, I invited my cousin. I'm going to give her a shout out, Dominique Saki at Bulgari. Proud to have nice. a you know a family member who uh, works in the business that I can show off among my fellow Puckettes. So, I love that. yeah, yes, Puckettes. I always forget to say that. Everyone subscribe mm-hmm. to Lauren's uh, newsletter line sheet with Puck. But Tara, um, I want to ask you about something decidedly less fashionable, which is the world of Republican politics, specifically Mm -hmm. the state of New Hampshire. The most fashionable thing in New Hampshire, I think, is, man, whatever the newest Subaru at the uh, Manchester airport rental car parking lot is. Have you spent a lot of time in New Hampshire? I feel like you know it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, too much time. Governor uh, Governor Chris (laughs) Sununu invited me to New Hampshire, um, holding you to it. If you're listening and uh, I might go up there in the next few weeks, so... You should. New Hampshire is so fun. Like, yeah. um, it'll start to be a little bit of springtime right around now. It's not full-blown summer at the lakes season, but I love New Hampshire. Got a lot of love for New Hampshire. The voters there, this is a cliche, take this process very seriously. You had an interview that's up on Puck with Matt Mowers, who I know pretty well, used to be executive director of the state Republican Party, worked for Chris Christie, He ran for Congress in New Hampshire and lost his Republican primary this most recent cycle to a MAGA candidate, Caroline Levitt, who then got smoked in the general election, proving once again that (laughs) uh, swing voters in New Hampshire is notoriously independent. Not really interested Mm -hmm. in Donald Trump. 
But, you know, so what was, you know, Mowers is a a good person to talk to because Matt, young guy, millennial, worked in the Trump administration as well, we should mention, tried to have it a little bit of both ways when he was running, you know, one sort of foot in the establishment door, one sort of foot in the MAGA door, and he lost. But then again, the candidate who beat him ended up losing in the general election. So I feel like he's got a good sense of how Donald Trump himself is playing right now in New Hampshire, a state that he won back in 2016 in a Republican primary fight. What does he say about Trump? Is he is he in good position in New Hampshire, or has Ron DeSantis got a little bit of uh, room to grow there? Okay, so what was interesting was that he really didn't lean into the idea of like Ron DeSantis as the one to grow. He kind of made it seem like it was an open field for anyone in New Hampshire right now. He mm. likes uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley. You know, I, I don't think he thinks Tim Scott can play in New Hampshire, but like just mainly because he's like a little too nice evangelical. Mm-hmm. But even like Chris Christie, obviously he's going to tout his old boss. But mm. the main point that he made was that people who were behind Trump in 2016, these are people who are state reps mm-hmm. and they were behind Trump in 2016 and now they're shopping. Mm-hmm. He said mm-hmm. everyone's shopping around right now in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And his theory is that every state could be a scenario in which it's Trump against one strong candidate. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it might not just be like Trump versus Ron DeSantis because Ron DeSantis Mm -hmm. may not even be alive by New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. but it could be like Trump versus Chris Christie, who's backed by Chris Sununu, who has really high approval, you know, ratings in the state, or Mm -hmm. Chris Sununu himself, if he decides to run, or Trump versus Nikki Haley in South Carolina, where Ron DeSantis is now spending money on attack ads against Nikki Mm -hmm. Haley. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a feeling that this could end up becoming like a race where in each of the primary states, Trump has like one strong contender in each state, and that like the influencers could sort of like corral around one person and it would be a weak showing if trump lost new hampshire right i mean yeah for sure i mean like people forget that in 2016 new hampshire was really like tipping point for trump to sort of Mm. run away with this he lost iowa then went to new hampshire he was a star in new hampshire that kind of played to the northeastern republican crowd the people who like Mm -hmm. like low taxes and they loved him but he got 35 percent of the vote you know, he didn't have the connection he had with evangelicals that he does now at the time, you know, and so he underperformed in Iowa. But look, if you take the people who finished behind Trump in New Hampshire last time, Kasich, Cruz, Jeb, Marco, maybe Christie, and combine them together, that's a group of center-right to conservative candidates, but they were all jumbled together. But to- in total, like, they combined for something like 45% of the vote, almost 50% of the vote. So if, if Trump is up against a singular center-right candidate in New Hampshire, he might have a ceiling. But then again, like, it's a, it's a different time. It's not 2016. He was president. Republicans still like him. Mm. But Sununu is a, a good person to bring up because uh, I think a couple months ago on CNN, he said if uh, DeSant- DeSantis has, like, a really good shot in, in New Hampshire, and it should be pointed out mm. that, yes, while Trump is beating DeSantis in national polls by a spread of like 30 points. It's like 20 points in New Hampshire. It's closer. And he hasn't even entered Mm. the race yet. And, you know, New Hampshire voters like to see the candidate up close and like go to their town halls and ask them questions and press the Mm. flesh, which is why, to Maurer's point, maybe New Hampshire is set up pretty well for an underdog like 
Nikki Haley or Vivek. You know, the state does has in the past at least rewarded hard workers, mm-hmm. and those two are working pretty hard. You know, someone like John Kasich finished second there. John McCain is a great example of a Republican who was rewarded for posting up there and just camping out. But then there's so many different sides to this argument. The flip side of that is all politics now is national. So who even knows if it matters that you do a bajillion town halls in New Hampshire? Yeah, exactly. So Trump is going back to New Hampshire next week. He's doing a town hall on CNN with their morning show anchor, Caitlin Collins. And that decision to do a town hall with CNN, you know, Dylan read this as a kind of new direction for CNN. My takeaway was, oh, interesting, new direction for Trump. And it does feel like there's Trump this time is doing some things a little different. He's doing a few more retail stops. You know, he went to that pizza place in Fort Myers. He uh, is he went to the Red Arrow Diner in New Hampshire recently in Manchester. Mm. He's he's working it. He's He's working working it. He's um, yeah. I remember his first trip to New Hampshire as a candidate. He spoke to the state party central committee and he was talking about how he's going to protect you know the new hampshire primary from national interference he is doing the cnn town hall yes he's doing all the typical maga things he went on steve bannon's show the other day he still says crazy shit but it looks like he, he just kind of has one eye toward uh you know swing voters a little bit more than he did even six months ago do you mm. ha- do you share that opinion with me oh absolutely i mean why else would he be doing an interview with cnn if that wasn't what he was thinking. That makes perfect sense. Also, I think they see that that Ron DeSantis' actually antagonistic relationship with the press, because like Trump's relationship with the press was never really like truly antagonistic. Whereas Ron DeSantis, literally, it's like a brick wall. It's kind of like yeah. Trump's wall. It's not a real wall. You know what I mean? Uh, you can go <laughs> around the side. Um, <laughs> yes. Ron DeSantis built a real wall with the press. And... I think he sees now like press is like eating DeSantis alive and it's like chewing on his remains. So Trump's like, Ooh, he's like, this is an opportunity for me. Let's get on CNN. And also not just with the press, but like, and I agree with you, DeSantis has a not healthy relationship with the press. He's maybe he's made a bargain so far. He doesn't need it. But Trump Mm -hmm. is not only reminding himself and reminding the press that he makes for good copy. He, he doesn't, as much as he hates the quote-unquote fake news media, he likes talking to them. But I also think like his, you know, getting off the the stage and do the big rallies, which he's still going to do. But these scenes of him interacting with voters mm-hmm. at Zaxby's in South Carolina, at the Red Arrow Diner, whatever. I'm not saying he's a regular guy in any way, but he's like drawing a contrast with DeSantis, who like probably doesn't want to get down and dirty with voters and shake hands and smile yeah. and mug. And Trump is a germaphobe, doesn't love shaking hands, but he's doing it. And part of right. this, like we talk a lot about Jeff Rowe, <laughs> but I don't think Chris Lasavita gets enough credit or attention here on the Trump side. Like Trump now has a guy as his senior advisor who has worked for decades at every level of Republican politics, mm. you know, NRSC, gov races, Senate races, House races. He did Swift Boat Veterans for Truth with Rick Reed against John Kerry. I thought of that when I saw the DeSantis putting fingers ad. Cause like the strategy with Kerry was to make him look aloof, weird and out of touch. And it kind Mm -hmm. of feels like Trump's trying to do that with DeSantis. I don't know if that's directly coming from La Civita, but like Chris has more tactical and strategic street cred in national politics than anyone who's ever worked for Donald Trump, period. Like he's a winner. What about Susie? 
Susie doesn't have the same level of experience at, at all. I mean, she has lots of experience, but like La Civita's been around as a serious operative for so long. And okay, you know, fine. I just, just want to make sure you're just not giving credit just to the guy, you know, because she's done a good <laughs> job with Trump. Believe me. I do believe you. I was just saying that I think La Civita's worked on more different campaigns than Yeah, yeah, Susie I get has. it. And he has. But I'm just curious. Like, yeah, it does feel like maybe he's listening to Susie and Chris and he's actually doing some things differently. At least that's my read on it. Because now they have DeSantis as a foil. Again, I don't think DeSantis' negatives are going down anywhere, but they are starting to create a narrative already before he even gets in the race. And I, I do give them some credit for that. Um, how much do you think Trump is listening to advisors this time around? And I know that's like an old circular question that we talk about every six months. It's, it's a, The thing with Trump is it's like not listening to advisors. It's management of him. And that's mm-hmm. why I give Susie credit, too, because she's managing Trump and perhaps managing him in a way that allows them to strategize and let Chris Lasavita strategize and do the things. Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. keeping him calm. It's keeping him focused. It's that's like half the game with him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think they're spotting the weaknesses in DeSantis. They decided to go hard after him early on before he even got in the race. It was like, I think it was strategically smart <laughs> and their ad with the pudding fingers was like pretty epic, very low budge, but like you get the point, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's like, they're, they're a bunch of trolls, but like, that's what the internet is. It's a bunch of trolls. It's not like beating chest sanctimony, like America, like Ron DeSantis's <laughs> ads, which sometimes I watch and I'm like, is that AI? Is that a person? And then I realize it's not. And I keep saying that every single time, but I just, I really truly feel that. That like, it would be very easy to replicate Ron DeSantis for an ad. Tara, thank you so much, Tara. Cheers, bye. When we come back, Julia is here to discuss the arrest in Russia of Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gerskovich. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Yaffe. Hi. Julia, at the White House Correspondents Association dinner last weekend, Joe Biden again demanded the release of Evan Gershkovich, who's this young Wall Street Journal reporter who was essentially kidnapped. He was arrested on charges of espionage. He's facing at least 20 years in a Russian penal colony. 
Outwardly, there's been a lot of sort of defiant optimism from the administration that they can bring Evan home. But talk to me about sort of what you've been hearing in private conversations, because it sounds like the mood is very different behind the scenes. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I saw happening is that on one hand, uh, you had President Biden giving a shout out to Evan's parents, to Brittany Griner, who was in the room, and he said, I'm so glad you're back. I can hardly wait to see you back on the court, kid. And there was this very happy, like you said, defiant mood. But in private conversations on the sidelines of these parties and also afterwards, you know, calling people I know in the White House and the State Department, the mood is much less optimistic. Right now, it's been about six weeks since Evan was arrested, and the Russians don't want to come to the negotiating table. And the Biden administration is having a hard time figuring out what it is the Russians even want for the release of Evan and Paul Whelan, the former Marine who's been serving a 16-year prison sentence also on espionage charges. That's what Evan was charged with. Carries a maximum sentence of 20 years, which is no joke. The White House doesn't know what Russia wants in exchange for the release of these two men. I found out that the White House has even offered very limited targeted sanctions relief that, you know, they're basically have let the the Russian side know that that's on the table if they want to discuss, right? If there's somebody that they want removed from the sanctions list, maybe that's something they could talk about. But they're not even sure if there were prisoner swap who it would be for, because the Russians show no appetite to even come to the table. They're just not interested in talking about it. Yeah. And you reported earlier this week that one element in the impasse here may be that Moscow actually does believe that Gershkovich is a spy. Whether correctly or incorrectly, this is not for show. They genuinely believe that he, he was an espionage agent. And so they are going to pursue the, the maximum possible leverage that they can extract from his imprisonment. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've seen this happen with a Russian journalist, Ivan Safronov, who Westerners haven't heard of. It's a case they didn't follow. We really only care if it affects uh, American or Western journalists. He was a reporter. He reported on the defense industry in Russia. And then all of a sudden, he gets locked up for espionage charges for reporting something about Russian military helicopter production or contracts, even though that news was reported, then reported by a um, state news service. And he got 24 years in a penal colony because in some ways the Russian government run as it is by FSB guys or people with that mentality, they don't value journalism, let's put it mildly, right? Like they don't value journalism and they think that there is no reason for journalists to be out looking at a tank factory, which is apparently where Evan was that what we see in the US as a journalist just doing their job and holding the government accountable and digging around in you know these murky parts of the government they see as spying so to some extent it's a it's a problem of you know how you define it in russian and how you define it in english and part of the problem is that the russians have signaled both publicly and privately that they don't want to even talk about a prisoner exchange or any kind of deal until, quote unquote, their judicial process has run its course, meaning a trial, a conviction, sentencing, 
And unfortunately, in these cases, to try an espionage case in Russia means a closed trial with classified evidence, sometimes evidence that your defense lawyer or defendant can't even see. And these trials take a long time, about a year and a half. So what everybody told me that I spoke to in the White House and the State Department was that it's going to be a couple years before Evan has a shot of coming home, unfortunately. Yeah. And Julia, another element of this that is so tragic is, you know, it's kind of shocking that Evan was in Russia, to be honest. And it speaks to the bravery, you know, or maybe the audacity of the few American and Western journalists who have remained in Russia reporting, especially after Brittany Griner was arrested, when it really became clear that the Kremlin was just looking for any excuse to basically turn American citizens into political pawns for these future prisoner swaps. Talk to me about the the mindset and the atmosphere for journalists who have remained in Russia. And are there any that are still there? You know, this is something that I have personally grappled with. And I have talked to friends, you know, I have many close friends that I made while we were all correspondents in Moscow. And journalists run toward the fire, right? They run toward the shooting, not away for safety. We want to see what's going on. And since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022, a lot of journalists went to Ukraine. I felt like I wanted to go to Russia. I felt like that story wasn't really covered enough. And that's where I felt myself being pulled to. I wanted to know what it felt like to be there, to be on the streets. Did people really support it? Or was it kind of a return to the the Soviet kind of public-private divide, that what you say in the street and in public is not what you tell your near ones and dear ones in your kitchen. But two things happened. One was the arrest of Brittany Griner, an American professional athlete. And two was the passage in March of really draconian military censorship laws that said that anybody who calls the war a war, anybody who reports facts that in any way diverge from what the Kremlin and the Ministry of Defense are saying, can go to jail. And that's when you saw a massive exodus of Russian journalists and Western journalists. There was a massive, massive run for the borders because it became very clear that it had become too dangerous to do this work. That if you were to report honestly, you ran the real risk of incarceration. And there were conversations I had all through that spring and summer with people who, including American journalists who left last spring, who had been there up until the very end. And I remember talking to one of them and he said, we were talking about how we'd love to go back and and see it and feel it and talk to people there and report on it. And he said, I'll probably be fine, but the chance of something happening to me that was like what happened to Brittany Griner is now not zero. And I don't know that I want to roll that die. And that's basically how I felt. Before, before Brittany Griner, before Evan, there was a sense that Western journalists who were accredited officially by the Russian government to work there were safe. Yes, the FSB might harass you. They might break into your apartment when you're not there and rearrange things or steal your rug or any number of things or or follow you, as happened to all of us. But they wouldn't do to you what they did to 
our Russian colleagues. They wouldn't beat you up. They wouldn't kill you. They wouldn't jail you. Or maybe they deny you a visa or turn you around at the border or deport you. To me, it became clear after the full-scale invasion began and after Brittany Griner, it became clear that there were no rules anymore, that these discussions in our community continued until the very end, until Evan's arrest. And there were people saying, look, Evan's there, this person from The Guardian is there, this person from NPR is there, it's becoming safer, maybe they're calming down. They haven't arrested an American journalist, and I always said they haven't yet, because they had never arrested an American athlete until they did. And unfortunately, that's what we saw happen. But I fully understand why Evan went it is the story of our lifetimes. If you are interested in Russia and have been working on Russia for much of your professional life, this is the story. And it's so hard not to be there. Well, obviously, all of us are, are wishing Evan and his family all the best. Um, a year and a half until his trial is an incredibly long time to be detained in Russia under these conditions. I also can't help but notice that 18 months, perhaps fortuitously for Moscow, is about the amount of time until the U.S. presidential election, hmm. which is perhaps a moment that the Kremlin is waiting for in order to see who the next president is before moving forward with these negotiations. I think that's a really, really good point. And, you know, in talking to people in the Biden administration who were involved in the Brittany Griner swap, they said that the Russians made clear to them that they didn't want anything to happen before the November 2022 midterms. They didn't want to give Biden and the Democrats anything that would help their cause, right? Because this was the party of the president who was supplying Ukraine and in their eyes, not allowing them to have what they want in Ukraine. So as soon as the midterms were over, pretty much, they came to the table and the deal was done in about a month. Does that mean they're going to wait until 2024 to see who the next president is? They might. And like you point out, it coincides with about how long a quote-unquote espionage trial takes in Russia. So yeah, I mean, this is the problem is when you walk into the buzzsaw of history, you're just a little person with these giant machines of state kind of grinding on yeah, and it's just a reminder of just how political this process really is. So um, like I said, we're, we're, we're wishing Evan and Tim all the best. We'll see how it plays out. Julia, thanks as always for stopping by. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.